Well, I want to begin with uh, a brief little story. The legendary football coach of the Green Bay Packers, Vince Lombardi, became accustomed to fans seeking his autograph. One day while eating at a public restaurant, he spotted a kid approaching his table. Lombardi grabbed a menu and quickly scribbled his name on it. When the kid got to Lombardi's table, the coach handed him the autograph menu. The youngster said, oh, I don't need a menu. I just need to borrow your ketchup. <laughs> uh, I've read that like a dozen times and it never gets old. Uh, poor, poor Coach Lombardi. He had no idea that humble pie was going to be served on the menu that day. His great success as a football coach had led to pride and, and an elevated view of self that blinded him to reality. He drank the Kool-Aid of pride and self-recognition. And like Lombardi, all of us are vulnerable to pride and the host of ongoing temptations that come with it. And unless we're walking in the Spirit, then guess what? Those desires are going to appeal to our hearts. Those fleshly desires of pride are going to appeal to self. And today, in Mark chapter 9, the Lord Jesus Christ will be serving humble pie to his disciples. At first glance, it's going to look like the two passages that we're looking at in Mark 9, 30 through 37. And if you're not there yet, I invite you to turn there. It will look like these are two disconnected texts, but a closer look helps us to see that there's a unifying theme embedded within these passages, and it is the theme of humility. The Lord will first speak of his humble death in verses 30 through 32 as he predicts his awaiting crucifixion and death for a second time in Mark's gospel. And then he'll speak of humble servanthood in verses 33 through 37 following the disciples' conversation about which one of them is the greatest. The Lord Jesus Christ can see the pride within their hearts that needs to be addressed, especially if they're going to fulfill their apostolic ministry. And let me say that he can also see the pride within your heart and within my heart that needs to be addressed so that we can also be effective in our ministry. How will each of these interactions expose their pride while showing their need to cling to Christ's humility. What lessons would the Lord have you and I learn at their expense? And how might these lessons cause us to cling even more to the humility of our Savior? The title of our message is in your outline. It is striving to be last. And we're going to look at two lessons from our Lord on humility so that we forsake our pride and strive to be last. And typically, when we start, we read the passage, but we're going to change things up and do things a little differently. And we're going to read the corresponding verses as we progress. And this is going to allow them to be fresh in mind and anchor them to the lessons in your outline. Let's begin by praying and ask God to bless our time together. Heavenly Father, as we study your word, illuminate our understanding and guide us by your Holy Spirit. Everything in this world encourages us to live lives focused on ourself. Our psychologized world caters to and promotes our self-esteem. 
Our employment and jobs encourage self-promotion and personal recognition. The technology of this fallen world is designed to appeal to our flesh and our pride with iPads and iPhones and i-everything else, with self-advertising social networks, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and multiple forms of narcissism. Yet when it comes to ministry, when it comes to be using by you as a servant, you want us to have a different mindset. You want us to die to ourselves. You want us to consider how we can make you and others more important. Nothing could be more diametrically opposed to this world than this truth, Father, and we need your help. You want us to follow the example of your son who laid down his life in service to others. We confess that we need your help. Use your word today to challenge our hearts and expose the pride that so naturally infiltrates our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Again, we're going to look at two lessons from our Lord on humility so that we forsake our pride and strive to be last. And the first lesson is revealed in verses 30 through 32. And if we want to forsake our pride and strive to be last, then we need to be consumed by our Lord's humbling example. Let's read verses 30 through 32 together. From there they went out and began to go through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know about it, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand the statement, and they were afraid to ask him. In each of these lessons that we're about to look at, there is going to be uh, an aspect of humility that we see in the Lord Jesus Christ contrasted with an element of pride that we see in the lives of the disciples. And here we're going to break these verses down into our Lord's ultimate example followed by the disciples' distorted thinking. First, our Lord's ultimate example. Verse 30 helps provide geographical context. In verse 30, they represents Jesus and the 12 disciples who just left the region of Caesarea Philippi. They were at the base of Mount Hermon. We know this um, after the transfiguration had taken place. And in our last study, when they had come down, we witnessed the Lord teaching them on the, the power of faith and its connection with prayer. And now it appears that they're headed south toward Galilee, moving in the direction of Capernaum. And this is significant because the Lord is moving closer and closer now and has reached the point where there's a transition from his public ministry to his private ministry with the disciples. And he's headed towards the cross. And so evidence of this private ministry taking place is noted in verse 31 when he didn't want anyone else to know about it. Jesus wanted his disciples to be prepared for what was coming. And so according to verse 31, he was teaching and telling them what was going to happen. And it's all wrapped up in a single verse. The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. 
This is the second time that the Lord's predicted his passion. And when we, we talk about that term passion, it is actually derived from a, a Latin word. Uh, his passion is related to the suffering that would take place during the week before he's killed. He'll be betrayed, he'll be delivered over, he'll be crucified, and ultimately be killed. And the first time Jesus predicted his passion was in Mark 8.31. And this is the second prediction here in Mark 9.31. And then we're going to see it um, just about another chapter later in Mark 10.32. And during the course of my study, as I was looking at what transpired before and after these events... It became pretty easy, the timing, because it was like a clock, 30, 9.30, 10.30. It was just set up conveniently to go take a look. And so maybe that's a helpful little cue for you. The Son of Man in verse 31, as we've learned in the past, is one of Jesus' favorite terms for self-designation. It's connected to the exalted figure that we see in Daniel 7, 13 and 14. And the disciples didn't have any problem with him being an exalted figure. And they enjoyed their association with Jesus in that regard. But what they struggled with were the verbs that Jesus uses in connection. He would be delivered. He would be killed. He would need to be raised from the dead. And this absolutely rocked their world. And this is even more difficult now for Peter, James, and John to comprehend after witnessing the transfiguration, which was perhaps days earlier. Think about it. The glorified Christ that they had witnessed, delivered. This word can also be translated betrayed, then killed, and needing to be resurrected. This is a prequel to the ultimate example of Christ's humility that the disciples would come to understand at a later point. But for now, it's totally incomprehensible. And this reality, by the way, lays the foundation for the servant theme that's found throughout the Gospel of Mark. And it's stated in the infamous verse of Mark 10.45, which really reflects uh, the theme of the entire Gospel account. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. How would hearing the reality of Christ's passion predicted for the second time impact the disciples look at verse 32 when they did not understand the statement and they were afraid to ask him here we see the disciples distorted thinking and one of the reasons their comprehension was so convoluted was due to the prideful positioning that was occurring in their hearts it was consumed by it in past sermons we've mentioned both the leaven of Herod and messianic triumphalism. The leaven of Herod we talked about was the desire for social status and for political influence that they, as Herod, who was a Jew, gained influence with Roman rule. And so there was a group that began to follow Herod, Herodians. And this was appealing to the disciples, and Jesus knew that, and that's exactly why he warns them in Mark 8.15 about the leaven of Herod. We also have messianic triumphalism, 
which we learned is a related concept of ruling with Jesus in his kingdom, that led them to believe that so long as Jesus was on their side, that they were going to be able to rule with the same level of authority. And this is why we see them always lobbying for position as to who gets to sit on the left and right of Jesus. This has permeated and consumed their thinking. This is why Peter had such a strong reaction back in Mark 8.32 because it went completely against their plans. The Messiah dying wasn't going to work for them and they wanted any thought, any picture of this reality removed from their thinking. And we all know what happened during that episode. Jesus takes the Lord by the shoulder, walks him over and says, Lord, tries to, to rebuke him. And, and he's met with a stinging rebuke from the Lord who said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on man's interests, but on God's interests, but man's. And some have speculated that due to the severity of the rebuke that occurred there, that this is the reason why they were afraid to ask. And while there might be some truth to that, I don't think they wanted to believe it. I don't. The real reason they were afraid is that their, their plans weren't going to come true. Surely after Jesus predicting his passion a second time, their minds would be free of such prideful position, positioning or thinking. Not hardly. The prideful saga continues as they begin having conversations about which one of them is the greatest. And here's what James Edwards had to say about this. The juxtaposition of these two paragraphs reveals a jarring contrast between Jesus' humility and the disciples' desire for distinction and recognition. A similar contrast is, in fact, present in all three passion predictions. Peter's rebuke of Jesus following the first passion prediction was prompted by the assumption that the Messiah, Messiahship entails privilege, not suffering. Likewise, the third passion prediction is followed by the request of James and John to sit with Christ in glory. And that's mentioned in Mark 10, 35 through 45. Listen to this. In all three passion predictions, Jesus speaks of the necessity of his rejection, suffering, and death. And following all three, the disciples voice their ambitions for status and prestige. Jesus speaks of surrendering his life. The disciples speak of fulfilling theirs. He counts the cost of discipleship. They count its assets. The disciples have yet to learn that the rewards of discipleship come only as a consequence of following Christ on the costly way to Jerusalem. End quote. Pride, recognition, had consumed their thinking. And thankfully, that never happens to us, right? Thankfully. Yes, I'm being facetious. Intentionally. Like Vince Lombardi, their hearts were consumed with personal recognition, and this was a problem. They wanted to be recognized. They wanted to be able to sign their spiritual autographs. They wanted to sit in the high places. They wanted men to esteem them. And by the way, this was promoted by the religious establishment of the day, set up by the scribes and Pharisees. 
But Jesus is helping them see that it's never going to work. In fact, this is going to create disunity amongst you, and it's also going to create disunity in the church. And those familiar with the account in the letter of correction that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he addressed this very thing as people were finding their identity with who? I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. Right? They had to get straightened out. Now we know how the story ends for the disciples. In time, they would see the foolishness of their thinking after striking out three times in a row. And the lesson and takeaway for us is to be mindful of the ways that our own hearts can be tempted to fulfill pride. To be recognized. To do things in ministry for the sake of other people recognizing us. There's a, there's a danger there. Right? And, and the lesson that we're going to learn uh, today from our Lord is going to help address that. One way to combat that pride is to be consumed by our Lord's ultimate example, which can be summarized in one simple expression death to self. Death to self. When his example consumes our thinking, then it pushes the attention away from ourselves. And it directs it toward him and to others. But I have to, I'll just confess in my own heart. I don't know how much that captivates me. I feel like so many times I'm, I'm blind to that reality, right? We, we, we want things to, to be well. We, we, we want ministry to thrive, right? We, we want those things. Those are noble desires. The fine line, the fine line is making sure that the Lord is in mind, that the Lord is being esteemed. Not, we have to fight against that attention to draw it to self. How might our Lord continue to challenge you and I to forsake our pride and to cling to his humility? Well, our second lesson provides even more insight, and it's this. Embrace our Lord's humbling principle. And in verses 33 through 37, we're going to see our Savior's probing question, the disciples' shameful silence, followed by our Savior's humbling principle. Let's read it together, starting in verse 33. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. The setting here was in Capernaum, most likely at Peter's house. And it's here where Jesus decides to ask this probing question. He knows what the conversation was all about on the way. 
hey, what were you guys talking about on the way here? Can you imagine? Crickets. <laughs> the, 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 the silence was, was deafening, right? Deer in the headlights. We don't see much deer around here, but I grew up in Illinois, and you had to look out for them, especially during this corn season, because they pull right out in front of you, and they stop in the, in the headlights, and that's how you run them over. That was them! Hey, what were you guys talking about on the way here? Whoa! Trapped! Right? Can you imagine? I mean, grown men having this fifth grade conversation? I mean, it's sad. But maybe that's how we need to start off our care groups, okay? Care group leaders, for your first meeting, let's go ahead and let's just sit around and talk about who's the greatest among you, okay? Let's see how that goes for a moment. I mean, that's absolutely unimaginable for us. Listen to how one pastor imagines the disciples' conversation going. Maybe Peter says, well, it's obvious that I'm the leader. After all, it was me that first proclaimed that Jesus is to be the Messiah. Maybe Andrew says, wait just a minute, brother. I introduced you to Jesus. If it weren't for me, you would still be out there on that fishing boat. Maybe John and James speak up and say, hold it right there. We were among the first to follow him. We've been with him longer than the rest. Maybe Judas says, what about me? He trusts me to take care of the money. And so it goes. Each man thinks he is more qualified than the others. Each man thinks he is more worthy of honor than the others. Each man thinks he should be the leader of the group. It's no wonder that these men were embarrassed by their argument. When they were talking among themselves, the issue seemed important. But when they stood before Jesus, they suddenly see how silly, immature, arrogant, and self-centered they'd been. He was talking about matters of eternity. They could only focus on their own self-interest. End quote. Pride is so ugly, is it not? It always seeks its self-exaltation. And there's been situations, sometimes maybe even experienced this, where you've been in an argument with somebody and then you've had somebody that's kind of sat in to help guide you through it. And as you're explaining what happened in the situation, it becomes apparent of the foolishness of your argument and, and what you were so desperately clinging to that was so important. You know? There's this big battle taking place fighting over something major, right? Parents, you, this happens with your kids. You go in there and it was just like, blah, crying and fighting and the battles, right? And you go in there and you're just like, oh my God, it's, what happened, Lord? One of the kids has a knife or something. You go in there and it's a gummy bear, you know? It's, you know, the last Tic Tac. Sophia took it. Okay, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to mention my daughter, but. It happens. It's ugly. And when the Lord exposes it, it should silence us. And though you, may, you and I may not boast outwardly, oftentimes we can be tempted to boast inwardly. We can be tempted to think pridefully. We want to sign our name on this ministry accomplishment or some other achievement. 
We want personal recognition. And it's here where we need to apply our Lord's humbling principle. Look at verse 35 with me. Sitting down, he called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. This is the principle of humility. What is Jesus ultimately saying here? Jesus' point was that in the kingdom, ordinary human values are reversed. The paradox of the gospel is that the way of service, the way of Jesus himself, is the way to true greatness. Title. Position. Notoriety. Places of honor. Personal recognition do not define greatness in the kingdom. They might define it according to the world. But when it comes to God's economy, service, sacrifice, submission, deference, and humility is what defines greatness in the kingdom. And this went against the, the, the cultural... Uh, the, the, the culture of the disciples' day just as much as it went against our day, perhaps even more so in the religious sector. And I was thinking about this. To some degree, we should expect worldly attitudes from the world. We should um, understand the fact that, you know, every child needs to receive a recognition ribbon, a participation ribbon. Because that is of the world, and it's so important that they understand that they're identified. That they, you know, as they. That's the, that's the world in which we live. We can expect that, but not among God's people. Were the scribes and Pharisees known for serving others? Were the scribes and Pharisees known for their humility? No. They were known for prideful posturing, for being served and lording their authority over people with pride. R. Kent Hughes shares that these same attitudes can infect the church today when he writes, Today we live on the other side of these great events, but the church is in great need of deliverance from these very attitudes. Some of us in the ministry have attended ministerial conventions which were given wholly to personality promotion and which ended with a well-defined, though unspoken, in parentheses, pecking order. The important people were easy to identify. Busy, 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 going from one important meeting to another, playing up to the media. True, there were no popes in sedan chairs, but there were executive limos with smoke glass and fawning, patronizing followers. The church has been assaulted with a cultural perspective which sanctifies winning. Being number one is American, and it is even thought to be Christian. And he says this, don't misunderstand. The scriptures do call God's people to do their very best. Paul strove to do so and he references Philippians 3, 12 through 14. And he encouraged Timothy to do the same in his ministry. But to be numero uno, to want always to be served, is sub-Christian. The disciples were blowing it, as are many today. End quote. 
powerful. What is the answer to this problem? Our Lord's humbling principle needs to be taken to heart by the church. The way down is the way up when it comes to how we think about ourselves. And humility is the key. That we would be defined by our humility in serving, not by our status or personal recognition. This is what defines a great servant and a great church in God's eyes. Being last of all and servant of all is an attitudinal mindset of humility. I want you to think deeply about these questions that I'm about to ask you for a moment. What do you think defines a great church? Is it the size? Is it the notoriety of the preacher? Is he on the radio? Is it the number of ministries that the church offers? Is it some combination of all those things? What is it? What do you think defines a great servant of the Lord? Is it how well they know their Bible? Is it how many people they're personally discipling? Is it the title that's connected to their name and the ministry of the church? Or again, some combination of all those things? What is it? In your mind's eye, you think of something when you think of a great church. You think of something when you think of a great servant of the Lord. And I just want to tell you, so oftentimes we get it wrong. We get it wrong. We think we know, but we don't. I don't. Jesus tells us what it is. It is selfless servanthood that defines a great servant. It is selfless servanthood that defines a great servant. And a great church is made up of a bunch, an assembly of selfless selfless servants that make up a great church. That's it. That's it. And I love our church. I really do. I love being a no-name pastor at a no-name church serving alongside no-name servants. I do. And if, if, if that rubbed you the wrong way, then you're someone that really needs to listen to this message. I need to listen to that. We all need to listen to this message. But I'm saying, that's the desire is to remove our name from the picture to remove self and to step back, right? And to be used as a conduit. I'm so thankful. I do. I love our church. I love the fact that so many of you serve the Lord faithfully. Some of you in multiple ministries and you do it because you love the Lord and you want to bless his people. And this is the path of humility. And it's the path to greatness in the Lord's eyes. It's what it means to abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. And that you, one day, friend, might be one 
of one of those that hears. Not everybody is going to hear it. But that you might be the one that hears it from the Lord that says, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. Not well done, you receive the most notoriety in the eyes of men. Not well done, you held this title or this position for that many years in the church, but that you served him selflessly, not selfishly. And just to cement the principle of humility in his disciples' eyes, Our Lord shares what I have labeled the picture of humility in verses 36 and 37. Look at verse 36. Taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me but him who sent me. Jesus taught not only by his words, but he he taught using symbolic actions. Sometimes it was related to the setting he was in. Sometimes it related to something that was right there in their midst. And in this instance, he grabs a child. He grabs a child and holds the child in his arms. And it's a powerful illustration. And it cannot be fully grasped without recognition of the lowly place occupied by children during this time period. And ironically, it's the same word in Aramaic, uh, child and servant. So there's this little play on words that's taking place here as well. It's unmistakable to the disciples. A child in the Bible is both a symbol of innocence, helplessness, and vulnerability. In Mark 10, verses 13 through 16, and in Matthew 18, 3 through 4, the disciples are exhorted to become humble like a child. But here and in Matthew 18, 5 and Luke 9, 48, the child represents any helpless person, especially a humble fellow believer whom the true disciple is to receive. And the word here, to welcome or receive means to be concerned about, to care for, to show kindness to. And this is just mind-blowing for the disciples right now, that Jesus grabbed this child because during this time period, serving a child wasn't going to get you any recognition. It wasn't going to help you climb in your, your social status. It wasn't going to be looked upon in favor. It wasn't going to advance you in the religious parliament of the day either. And that is the whole point. When you serve a child of God, when you serve a fellow believer, there might be no benefit. There might be no prestige or accolades that come along that this world would see whatsoever. But in God's eyes, and according to Jesus' words here, It is the same as welcoming or receiving not only Jesus himself, but our Heavenly Father as well. That is a radical statement. That is a radical statement. 
God views it just as if you were doing it directly to him. That is what Jesus is saying right here. And Jesus shares this reality when speaking of the judgment of believers in Matthew 25. And I want to invite you to turn there because you have to see it. You have to see this. This will change and should change your entire outlook on ministry. And maybe your faith is much stronger than mine and you're much more mature than I have. But, I, but I've discovered even during the week, during my study, that I haven't seen this, that I lose sight of this, and we can't. Matthew 25, starting in verse 34 through 40, says this. Then the king will say to those on his right, the, the, the king is the Lord. This is, this is God himself. Will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Oh, church, see this. See this with me. Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Wow. You did it to me. What is the significance of striving to be last? To, to, to becoming a servant of all? It is connecting the dots to this reality that we cannot lose sight of. We cannot lose sight of. Whenever you are serving another believer, it is as if you're directly serving the Lord himself. Oh, that we would comprehend the spiritual magnitude of this reality. It changes everything. It changes everything but what happens to us. We get so man-centered, do we not? We get, you know, all of a sudden when we're serving in pebbles and a bunch of crying babies, right? And it's just like all, the, all of a sudden we get lost in that, in that atmosphere. Or maybe it's some other environment that you're serving in. And it's, it's people, it's, it's the sheep that consume our thinking. We don't realize that we're serving the Lord himself. That in his mind's eye, he pictures it as if we're serving the Lord himself. When you're a pebble servant, God views you doing it directly to him. When you, when you get one of them a drink of water, you're doing it for him. When you read them a story, when you wipe a runny nose, 
Actually, if they have a runny nose, they probably shouldn't be in pebbles that day. The, the, the Aguilars and the, the, the Roshas will get after you and shepherd you on that one. But you get what I'm saying, right? You change your diaper. Whatever it is that you're doing, the Lord wants us to, to grasp it, and it changes everything, does it not? Are you, are you with me? Are you with me right now when we see the reality that when we serve with that mindset, that it impacts everything, everything that we do? When we know that it's his hand, I was talking to my wife about this passage, and I, I, I used the example that the Lord grabs a child. And moms, how encouraging this can be for you as you take care of your children that you're doing it unto him. That it can feel like nobody's taking notice and it's so hard. And the Lord is not unjust so as to forget the work that you are doing towards his name. Hebrews 6.10, right? He sees it. In Roots or Rock Ministry, when you teach a Bible lesson, God views you doing it directly to him. When I preach a sermon, God views me doing it directly to him. When you pray for a missionary, when you go on a missions trip, whatever you do to bless other believers, you're blessing him. Embracing our Lord's humble principle leads us to forsaking our pride and striving to become a servant of all how will God use his word this week? How will, just take some time. This is our homework assignment for myself included. Let's, let's just look and be consumed by this passage and how will it impact our hearts to be a servant of all? And you know, with care groups starting up, it, it couldn't be any more perfect in terms of the timing, right? How we might be able to think about ministering to to others in our care group, those that have needs, those that need our help, those that need our encouragement. We need to take these words to heart. And at the same time, this also helps us and it frees us from the consumer mentality that has been cultivated across the, across the evangelical landscape to attend churches, to, Right? And the Lord flips it. He flips it. He does. And we need to see it. And we need to see it. I need to see it. I want to close with these final words from J.C. Ryle when he wrote about this passage. Let us strive to make a practical use of this heart-searching maxim. Let us seek to do good to our fellow men and to mortify that self-pleasing and self-indulgence to which we are all so prone. Is there any service that we can render to our fellow Christians? Is there any kindness that we can do them to help them and promote their happiness? If there is, let us do it without delay. Well would it be for Christendom if empty boasts of churchmanship and orthodoxy were less frequent, and practical attention to our Lord's words in this passage were more common. The men who are willing to be last of all and servants of all for Christ's sake are always few. Yet, yet these are the men who do good, break down prejudices, convince infidels that Christianity is a reality, 
and shake the world. Cornerstone Bible Church, may we be servants of all and may we shake this world. Amen? Amen. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we bow our heads right now just praising you, rejoicing in you for you have set these truths. You have orchestrated even the opportunity for us to zero in on your son to consider his example. And I didn't spend so much time there because I know that we're going to have the opportunity during second hour, during communion, to really meditate on what has been done for us and the ultimate expression of humility on the cross. And we always want to be number one. That is the nature of every human heart. We always want to be number one. And yet you have redeemed us. You have caused us to be born again so that we could become not number one, not even number two, number three, number four, number five, and down the line. And greatness is measured by how far we can push ourselves down that line. It's a real battle. It's a real struggle. But by your grace and in your goodness, through the sanctifying work and the ministry of your Holy Spirit, we have a new nature. And Father, if there's someone here today who has encountered your truth and realized that their life is consumed with self and serving themselves, would you draw them to repentance? Would you draw them to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Would you have today be the day that they would be so fed up serving themselves? The world's smallest package is the person consumed in themselves. And there's so much more that you want us to see and to enjoy and to be blessed by in the Christian life. And we need to take this principle of humility to heart. May that picture of a child make a lasting impression in our minds. And may our hearts be greatly encouraged by what the Lord Jesus Christ shared in this passage today in Mark 9 and also what he shares in Matthew 25, verses 34 through 40. That whenever we do something to our fellow believer, that in the end we're doing it for you. May we not lose sight of that. I pray, Father, and ask for your help as a church that we would all become servants of all, that we would enjoy the rich blessing of ministering in an environment where that's the case. I thank you for the faithful servants that are already living out this truth in our church. And for those who might need to catch up, those that you are graciously and patiently waiting to serve you and to serve others. Would you ignite that fire within them this day and may it burn stronger and stronger over the course of this week. We give you thanks and praise for this time to study your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.